On Being is brought to you by the John Templeton Foundation. Harnessing the power of the sciences to explore the deepest and most perplexing questions facing humankind. Learn about the latest discoveries in the study of forgiveness, generosity, and free will at templeton.org. As a scientist on frontiers of how humans behave and function together and change together, Agustin Fuentes brings spacious perspective to what I've taken to calling our species moment. There are many ways to begin the story of 2020, and one of them would be this. Altogether, we remembered that civilization is built on bodies breathing in proximity to other bodies. Enough of us started asking human questions of our life together. We started experiencing that the way we've done much, from the economy to race to work, could be done radically differently. What Agustin Fuentes knows is refreshingly creative and practical fodder for the necessary reinvention ahead. For we have been modeling our life together on survival of the fittest long after science itself moved on from that. We have been organizing around parts, even as we're learning to see that in every sphere of life, we inhabit ecosystems. This great ecosystem dynamics, these different processes, pushing, pulling, melding, shifting across the landscape. It's messy. It's actually hard to explain. But once you start to get into it, it makes so much more sense with the actual world. Agustin Fuentes has done work in primatology, but specializes in biological and evolutionary anthropology, based most recently at Notre Dame and Princeton. He's delivered the prestigious Gifford Lectures and written and edited more than 20 books, mostly on human nature, from belief and creativity to race and wisdom. He was born in Santa Barbara, California. So, Augustine, I feel that the kinds of questions you ask in your work in these various fields you work in around how humans work and why we work and what we do and why we do it are really all variations on the core question of what it means to be human. So you take this up scientifically, and yet it overlaps with moral and spiritual and theological inquiry. And I'm just curious about how you would trace the roots of this kind of thinking and questioning that you do in your childhood, in the earliest background of your life? You know, I think about this maybe once a month or maybe more frequently <laughs> because it comes up and I, I, I'm in the midst of some kind of project or research or thinking about evolution or human behavior or some of the significant social problems of the day. And I ask myself, why do I care so much? Yeah. And I think a lot of it has to do with, with my family. Well, yeah, your family, you, you, had, you would have had family in different countries, I suspect. Yeah, yeah. Uh, different countries, different languages, different socioeconomic sort of areas. And what were those? What, tell me a little bit about that makeup of your, of your immediate family. And... <laughs> so my father's from Spain, uh, from Madrid, uh, and my mother's from New York. And we have friends and family spread around multiple countries. And I was lucky enough to spend time uh, while growing up with my family in Spain and also to spend time with my family in the United States who were very different, came from different worlds and different patterns. And then in the United States, I mean, I lived in Oakland and San Antonio, Texas and Berkeley, Richmond, California. Um, I've lived in Washington State, Indiana. All of those variations give you insight into the different types of people, patterns, places, but also the sameness. 
I love the way someplace you described that what you got excited about about anthropology is this, that it was a space that that linked the bones and muscles and gut and DNA, human DNA and behavior and didn't detach that from culture and history and power. Exactly. The whole idea that for us to really understand the human, you have to recognize, you have to understand how muscles and bones and genetics and the circulatory system work, but you have to also understand how the neurobiologies interface with the perceptions, the histories, the social experiences, the languages and the daily lives of people. And it's that conflux of events, right? That ongoing dynamic that just, that, that really draws me. And it's messy. It's messy to be human, but it's really fascinating. So I have said, if in this in this last year, um, with the pandemic and ruptures, and um, it's this extraordinary thing that we, on some global sense, have had an experience together. I just I'd love to hear your reaction if I had been at a dinner party with you when that phrase "species moment" was put out into the air. I'd love to know, like, what. You know, where does that take you? What's your reaction? How, how would you start talking to me about that? The first thing I'd say is it's a multi-species moment that this year, 2020, I'm going to talk mostly about humans, but I can't initiate this conversation without nodding to the fact that we've partnered with another species, this virus, SARS-CoV-2. Right, right, And right. it came and joined us in a world that we have largely created, modified, and changed. Mm. So the species moment for humans is how we navigate yeah. this multi-species relationship that we have largely, but not singly, formed. It seems to me, it strikes me as I dive into your work, that the COVID-19 pandemic in many ways, is such an illustration of what you call the human niche, the way humanity exists in the world. Would you lay that out, what that human niche <laughs> I wish COVID-19 was not such a great example of everything I've been arguing about. <laughs> right. It really would be better if it was, it was just some minor thing in that whole process. Yeah, I mean, I want to read something that you wrote. So I'm just to illustrate okay. like where, yeah. how my mind made that connection. Humans evolved as beings whose needs to touch and be touched, to converse, debate, and laugh together, to smile and flirt with one another, and to interact in groups are central to healthy lives. Yeah. And it's, those are data-driven assertions, right? Mm -hmm. those, that's based on our physiology, on what we understand about human psychology and social behavior, about human economic and social and societal structures, and about human evolution. Being together, being with one another is not just about sort of a social context or a psychological context. It's also central to the way our physiologies, our bodies, our circulatory and digestive systems function. And so that's a baseline, and that has been really successful for us. But it turns out <laughs> for transmission of something like uh, SARS-CoV-2, that's also the perfect landscape. I mean, we are really sort of a perfect species for an incredibly uh, jumpy, easily uh, transmittable virus. Yeah. I sometimes feel like science, we get the science we're ready for. And there's something so interesting. I mean, interesting, interesting at a remove, also terrifying close up. That we've just, you know, really in the fields you're working in and, and kind of touching with your work, like we're just, we've really just come to this point of understanding, not just taking in the notion of ecosystem as the way life works for all species, life on this planet works, but also that, that our own bodies are ecosystems. 
it's amazing. There's this notion, uh, and a number of just incredible scholars have doing really good work on this, but, but this idea of something called the holobiont, that organisms say, say are again. not the holobiont. Okay. Holobiont. And this is this basic concept demonstrated in a very, very rigorous way that organisms are ourselves, things, cells that are made up of our own DNA and proteins and all of that, plus thousands, tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of other organisms and their DNA simultaneously. So we are ourselves ecosystems, as you said. And the idea that these holobionts move around in the world, interacting, shedding, sharing, overlapping, fusing. I mean, it sounds like a science fiction So movie. we're the holobionts. Uh, that is us. Yes. Yeah. Yes. We are is holobionts. It tr- I think I read somewhere recently that there are more microbial cells in a human body than there are human cells. It's it sort of debated how you want to do that. Yeah. But let it put it this way. If, if you were to suck out of the body everything that is... Um, human, right, yeah. that is clearly just us, yeah. you'd still have a very strong outline <laughs> okay. and much of the body filled in. Okay. And even even how, I mean, this is in second part of that quote from you that I just read, the very functioning of neurobiological systems of the hormones and enzymes circulating through arteries, guts, and other organs is tied to human social connections and relationships to others. But even things like the gut and like the gut biome, which is now described as the second brain, that's very new information. It's new, but actually, if you go around the world and you talk to people uh, everywhere, cultures across the planet uh, today, and I bet in the past, they'll tell you that when you eat certain things or go through certain kinds yeah. of stresses or when you're, you know, bad things happen, that they're going to tell you things are disordered, things are out of whack. So they may not know specifically that it was lactobacillus populations in your gut, you know, dropping out um, that's affecting this physiological system, but they knew that there was something wrong in the body. And so I think what we've done scientifically is gotten better and better and better at disarticulating the pieces Right. And now the challenge for science is to put them back together in ways that are understandable and make sense, not just to the researchers, but to everyone else. So talk to me about the social ecosystem of the human niche. So if you think about a niche, a niche is sort of a description of the way an organism makes a living in the world and that world that it lives in and their relationship, right? And so when you talk about humans, our niche is social through and through. Humans are never really alone. Even when we're by ourselves spatially, like sitting in a room, our thoughts are filled with others. Our our bodies are even potentially carrying, you know, the skin cells of others and, and a variety of other things. So we are always thinking with and about other people, even when we're not with them. In fact, our resting neurobiological state, like when you're at complete sort of rest, the sort of default state of the brain is a social. It's the same one that sort of turns on for social interactions. Mm. So, so that means that over evolutionary time, right, the, the bodies, the structures of being human have adapted to and integrated themselves into the system where the social is everything. The psychologist Michael Tomasello says this great phrase, um, a fish is born expecting water, a human is born expecting culture. Yeah. And so if we step out and think of like the culture, the social, all of that dynamics as the water we live and breathe and move in and how mm. it shapes us and we shape it, then that statement makes sense. It also just underscores why um, the disruption of the social because of the pandemic is so 
completely stressful yeah. um, to us on every single level and at a physiological level as well. Yeah, and I think this is, uh, I mean, one of my great fears is that people are not paying enough attention to the psychophysiological or more specifically put the neuroendocrinological, the sort of mm. hormone physiology and brain impacts of what we're doing now. This lack of connections, these distancings, even though they're so important for overall health and for societal and economic health, um, we need to be aware that we have to find some way to keep social because our bodies and our minds are being damaged by not being around other people, mm-hmm. not touching other people. I mean, the most common thing I hear now when I talk to people about sort of what's, what is it like six, eight, nine months into this thing? And they say, I miss hugging people. Yeah. But you're saying that missing hugging people is goes very deep, that it's actually really reaching into us at a cellular level, that missing. Yeah, Mm -hmm. yeah, and at a psychological level and at exactly Mm -hmm. the superficial level that like, God, I just want to be near someone, right? So, you know, I'm sure that the, as uh, someone uh, jokingly said, the dogs all got together and planned this because dogs are probably getting more hugs on a daily basis. (laughs) That's true. Yeah, or evil cats. Yes, yeah. I'm I'm allergic to them, so they... (laughs) They might have just done it on purpose. Krista Tippett, and this is On Being, today with biological and evolutionary anthropologist Agustin Fuentes. So, you know, you said a minute ago that science has to put us back together, right? I mean, so that's true. What I, you know, I said, I said, we get the science we're ready for, and on the other hand, on these cutting edges, we realize that every single culture around the world has this deep intelligence about guts. Right. And and so now the science catches up. But it's also true that evolutionary biology is another field that has itself evolved, right? You know, you touch on that and, and you've used the word evolution a few times in this conversation. Here's something you wrote, you know, evolution is not, but but this is an emergent understanding. Evolution mm-hmm. is not about bigger, badder, or more beautiful winning the day. It does not stop at the perfect solution, nor is it goal-directed. And that is out of sync with an older idea of evolution that is so deeply planted in our cultures and in the ways we do all kinds of things, including think about an economy. Absolutely. So here's, here's just two things to point out. One is uh, what you said is absolutely true in the sort of general popular and unfortunately some scientist notion of evolution. They're really out of step with what we know about how evolutionary processes work. But in actuality, if people go back and read Darwin and Wallace and actually read right. through a lot of evolutionary theorists yeah. and biologists, you'll find it's much more complicated. It was never about sort of the bigger, faster, you know, the ones with the bigger teeth winning or the fastest runners. It's, it's a really complex. And it was never somewhat, just about winners and losers. It was never just about winners and yeah. losers. Yeah. yeah. And, and actually, it's really a bunch of small tweaks and moves and shifts. And most of it's quite boring from a mm. structural thing. It's not all sex and violence. Right. 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 But. Yeah. But. 
But it is critical to understanding who we are and why we are the way we are. And so I think, you know, it's it's a shame and I think damaging to our societies that, that we don't have good evolutionary education in, in, in K through 12, you know, in the younger age schools, and that we don't involve, for example, there's not evolutionary biology in most medical schools and medical mm-hmm. training. And that's a little scary. So So spin that out. Like, how would that inform and illuminate what? people are learning in medical school or practicing as physicians? So think about when we talk about organs, right, or organ systems. Right now, most of medicine is built on a failure model, the idea that something's broken, we go in there and fix it. When in fact, an evolutionary uh, uh, focus asks, what are the patterns and processes of variation in this system and how do they work? That's your baseline. Like, what's the variability? What's the range going on here? And in that range, what's the variability and how do we modify these different systems together so that they come together and function well? That's very different from what's wrong. Let me target a place and fix that problem. Um, and, and it's true. It's very hard to deal with a lot of diseases in a holistic sense. Um, but the baseline starting point should be there, and then we should move to the specifics. And I'm, again, I'm not knocking, you know, the incredible advances we've made in, in medical technologies and medical understandings. What I am knocking is the assumptions by many doctors about what the human body is and about what human lives are like. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think an evolutionary perspective w- would help that. And, and I think evolutionary perspectives would help everyone because you can see the interconnectedness of life and understand a little bit more about why systems work the way they do. Um, and that doesn't take any of the wonder away from life. No. It actually adds to it. Yeah. That's also all the way through, Darwin. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I've had some wonderful conversations across the years with David Sloan Wilson, who's mm. one of the people who's been on this edge of you know, opening up imaginations about it being so much bigger than survival of the fittest. But I mean, so just tell me, for example, how old are you? I am 54. 54. So when you first started thinking about evolutionary biology, I mean, how have you watched the field as you've interacted with it change from maybe what you thought growing up, if you thought about it? So when I did absolutely think about it, and I remember some of the early stuff I read um, I was really influenced, as so many were, by something like Richard Dawkins' Selfish Gene, yeah. uh, by many uh, Robert Ardrey's uh, book about sort of killer apes, um, this whole idea, you know, Space <laughs> yeah. Odyssey 2001, those apes finding the bone and smashing each other in the head. This Hobbesian notion that, right, if yeah. you strip away the veneer of culture, there's this competition and this aggressive animal. But you know what really started to push me away from that was I started doing science. I started mm-hmm. researching things and watching organisms. And it always struck me that humans weren't nearly as bad on average as we think they are. (laughs) That that most people are actually doing great stuff all the time. We have an amazing capacity to be horrible. But, you know, day in, day out, most people are pretty cool with one another. Um, So that struck me. And then I started watching all these other animals. And I started noticing, wait, wait, this cost-benefit analysis, this winner-loser competition, that doesn't seem to pan out. And then I started taking classes and reading with really good evolutionary biologists. And they really spun my head around. They totally moved away from that. Yeah. And, yeah. And, 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 and evolutionary biology itself, with something now called the extended evolutionary synthesis, is moving away from these sort of simplistic, linear explanations of progress or, you know, change via competition over time. And just seeing back to the beginning of our conversation, this great ecosystem dynamics, these different processes, pushing, pulling, melding, shifting across the landscape. Again, it's messy. It's actually hard to explain. But yeah. once you start to get into it, 
it makes so much more sense with the actual world. Yeah, I'm so struck when I'm speaking with people like David Sloan Wilson and others who are looking at us in this way. Um, there's been the fascination with the dysfunction, the focus on the dysfunction, and there was the focus on our, what I think we would call our dysfunction, um, hyper-competitiveness. And now there's this fascination with the human superpower of cooperation and how that's what helped us survive as much as fighting and winning. <sighs> so I, I wish we would stop with the binaries, right? It's yeah. always it's always like, well, no, it's this. No, 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 it's totally that, not that. You're completely wrong. It's this. And, and the problem is that whole competition on one end and cooperation on the other, that's a false dichotomy. Those things are not in opposition to one another. Right. In fact, for humans, the best cooperators make the best competitors. <laughs> so I mean, if, yeah. you, if you think about that. so It's a I, way to success. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And so I think what we really want to do is step back and say, what do we see? And that's why I do focus on cooperation and collaboration, right, um, as central because the, the data are in, and that's a very, uh, you know, David Sloan Wilson has demonstrated this, many, many, many folks working in human evolutionary processes, people working with other primates. Collaboration and cooperation is central to social mammals and extremely important for primates and most important for humans. But that doesn't mean we're good all the time or that, you know, we're running, holding hands through the daisies for most of our evolutionary history. <laughs> right. No, we hit each other over the head. It's just on average, those who spent all their time hitting people over the head didn't do very well. And even filling out the picture, I mean, this is from your Gifford lectures, you know, meaning, imagination, and hope are as central to the human story as our bones, genes, and ecologies. And that's kind of what we've looked at when we've told this human story of who Absolutely. we are, who we deeply are. I think hope is an important thing, too. Um, and, and I think my interactions with, with theologians, with philosophers and other humanists have helped me see how sort of including the way in which people live their lives and commit themselves, how they believe, what they engage in, those things are critical in shaping the human niche, right? And anthropological research also demonstrates that sort of the deep ethnographic moment, how people actually are in the world, shapes the way they see, they perceive, they interact. And, and those are evolutionary, evolutionarily relevant processes. by David Sloan Wilson, who we just discussed, is This View of Life, Completing the Darwinian Revolution. And after a short break, more with Agustin Fuentes. Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer envisions a world that embraces love as a guiding principle and animating force for our lives, a powerful love that helps us live in sacred relationship with ourselves, others, and the natural world. Learn more by visiting Fetzer.org. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today with biological and evolutionary anthropologist Agustin Fuentes. 
we're exploring his spacious perspective on human nature and capacities, his intelligence for working with the insights 2020 has laid bare. In a chapter on the economy in his most recent book, Why We Believe, Evolution and the Human Way of Being, he underscores that every economy is an act of human imagination, literally believed into being. And modern economic theory was founded on a belief that human beings are, on balance, rational and logical as economic actors. But this cannot be squared with the extreme inequity in wealth distribution across the planet in the early 21st century, or with the disconnect of the stock market with human well-being across the pandemic. We touched on COVID-19, the virus, and this is also part of the human niche, as you describe it. Then there's the incredible economic fallout of the response to this virus. And it's also a moment, I mean, this moment was upon us, but it's even more upon us now. And I think this will deepen as we move into the next year. That there's something profoundly out of whack in the way we do an economy. Um, And this, the perspective that you bring, is, is, is an interesting and I think a refreshing way to look at it. Because the discussion that gets had is becomes very partisan and actually quite emotional. But just to point out, as you do, that, that we have this system that actually is based on an idea about how human beings behave that is simply not true. I mean, I think something that's really important to point out is that everyone says, well, communism failed. Yes, Soviet communism failed miserably, right? Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean that American capitalism is working wonderfully. Right. 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 Those two things are not, they're right. actually not Again, even it's a related. False binary. Yeah. Right. So yeah. let's get rid of that binary and let's ask ourselves, like, how does our economy work? Right? Are people getting paid the level, the value of the quality of their work? Is mm-hmm. there equal access to different things? You know, there, there's mm-hmm. these questions, as you said, have been going on. Um, let's, for example, in the United States, uh, the last century has been this incredible dynamic of thinking about these kind of economic processes. Yeah. But now I think you're right. I think people are saying, wait a minute, how, how did we get here? Yeah. Something that you pointed that I really appreciate is that why we don't behave as rational economic actors. Because you you are about understanding why and how we actually right. do things, right. is not because we're stupid, but because we're social. Exactly. Um, you you had there's a sentence if, from your writing that I, I had to think hard about it, but you said we willingly accept losses as often as gains in exchanges. The reason is for the majority of humans, because classic economic theory would say that we would have an intolerance for loss, right? But you said for the majority of humans, exchanges are not about profit, but about making and keeping social connections. And I had to think about that because I think I think a lot of the spending, a lot of the loss that I do, I would think about things like clothing and face creams yeah. or yeah. Um, supporting my favorite restaurants in lockdown, doing a lot more takeout, spending more money on food in that way. But then when I thought about it, those are actually social acts, right? That's mm-hmm. about me being a social creature. Exactly. These exchanges, these back and forth, this is about our sociality. It's not about the money. 
And, and, right. and, and I think there are many exchanges that are about money, but really humans are constantly, we do things all the times for people, which if we did the cost benefit analysis, we'd end up losing, but we do them because we end up winning. They're part of this whole social dynamic that we've been talking about. And, and I think if we understand that, then we come back to this notion that, you know, what's really central for humanity are our acts of compassion and caring. Right. And, and, and that gets us back to this idea of hope. Right. There's there's always hope for humanity and there's capacity if we think about our exchanges, not just as economic relationships, but as the patterns and processes of building the human society. We're going to think about it in a very different way. Mm-hmm. But you, you've got to change the way people think about it because mm-hmm. it is driven in us. They're like, oh, no, you know, you, you, you got to get the best deal, for, the best bang for your buck. Right. Um, that whole that phrase could be um, yeah, unpacked in many horrible ways. <laughs> right. But, but, but the whole idea that, that, that we should be rationally assessing all of our interactions for cost benefits and come out ahead. Right. Yeah. That the idea that, that he who dies and it's usually he who dies with most money wins. Uh, it, we know that's not true. We know it's not true. That's the thing. It's so weird because we know, we know, we have all these adages like money can't buy you happiness. And we actually have a million articles in the newspaper that prove that is true, right? Articles about ri- the richest yep. people. But somehow we still keep living and aspiring, um, as you say, according to these deeply ingrained beliefs that we've been taught, that we've societally accepted and built our economy around. Right. And, and back to this idea of the human niche, right? If what we perceive is real for us, right, what we believe is real, then it's going to maintain itself until we start to shift those perceptions mm-hmm. and, and tweak those beliefs in a way that result in greater benefits for a greater amount of people. Hmm. I had this professor of theology um, who who used to talk about the real and the really real. <laughs> and it's kind of, you know, it sounds fanciful if you just say it that way, but the older I grow, the more that language and that notion of distinguishing b- between what t- what is really real <laughs> and what we take as real, but in fact it is not. It's flimsy. Um but but yeah. flimsy reality can be as damaging as really real. And mm-hmm. that's the scary part, mm-hmm. right? I mean, mm-hmm. the, the thing is, we, we've got to get away from this idea that anything in the human or for the human can be all in your head, right? That's, it just doesn't work that way, right? Because the head is connected to the body, the body's connected to the world. Um, and so, you know, how we think about things really matters. Yeah, right. Right. Just thinking is this kind of a nonsense phrase. Yes, exactly. Um, From the kind of science you do as an anthropologist, you also know very well that data doesn't penetrate the human brain and heart. Data alone. Um, And and, and this is something else I wanted to ask you about, but, but, but that too. I mean, you know, uh, what is one thing that's emerging is the breakdown of the notion of truth and the experience of trust yeah. across our society, across many societies. And, you know, you you know our, we're not just brains. Our, you, this is you. Our brains do nothing without our bodies. Our bodies are never outside our social ecological contexts. Um, so... How do you think, because I have been just recently with a number of people who've said we've got to restore truth and we've got to restore trust, right? That's a common 
feeling now, but how do we do that? What do you know about how we do that? Well, the first thing is, you're right, data are not going to, they're not going to do it. They can help, right? Data are important. I really love data. I think having information that you are basing your assertions on is important. Um, but, but you're right. So truth and trust, let's just take those two. Um, first off, truth has always been a slippery and problematic reality. Um, you yes. know, no matter what, everyone has their truths. Um, and, and, and that's tied to what people believe in how so they perceive like the world. Like human natures. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So, so let's back away from truth and think about information about data and veracity, right? Mm-hmm. Um, is what you're seeing, is what someone says, can you demonstrate that that's, that has veracity, that that is accurate? So rather than sort of this broad gloss of truth, let's break it down to the specific arguments, the specific assertions. So I think that's one important way to not stop pointing out what is not supported, right? Mm-hmm. What, 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 what can be verified and what can't be. So I think that's very important. But the other thing, trust, that's much more and, and trust is not just about sort of convincing people to put their faith in you. It's demonstrating predictability, reliability, and compassion, mm-hmm. right? And we know how to do that. And so if we thought, if the goal of many of our politicians were to demonstrate predictability, reliability, and compassion, I think we might be in a different place. And mm-hmm. if our social and community structures were putting that in the forefront, as opposed to other things in the forefront, uh, uh, sort of economic interests, let's say, I, I think I think we'd see differences. You can see this is not perfect by any stretch of imagination, but if you look at the sort of political debates in New Zealand, for example, you can see some attempt or a system wherein these ideas of predictability, reliability, and compassion are at play. Yeah. It also, um, your description of the human niche of, as we say, this ecosystem in which of which human beings are and in which mm-hmm. we operate, um, whether we know it or not, then if you think about a loss of trust with us as such utterly social creatures, you start to see how a breakdown of trust is just a breakdown of everything, right? It's yeah. such a loss of connective tissue within that ecosystem. Exactly. The, the metaphor of connective tissue is great because as trust breaks down in the human niche, pieces fall out or get wobbly and insecure. Mm-hmm. And so rather than sort of navigating this complex niche, working together, pushing and pulling against things to sort of move through this world, um, we start having it fall in on us and we get mm-hmm. lost and we get separated and isolated. And that's when things fall apart. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being, today with biological and evolutionary anthropologist Agustin Fuentes. I find it very um, helpful in a really kind of quiet way that your insistence, you know, you said the, the world doesn't feel like a very compassionate place, but it is, or better put, we are. And as you say, on average, in the main, and I, I think about this so much that, you know, even when I'm having these conversations with people about how demoralizing and depressing it is to read or watch or listen to the news, if we just step back and think about the world around us, the people we know, there's a disconnect between that 
utterly depraved <laughs> picture of us that's emerging and how, how life actually really works kind of day to day, hour to hour. Yes, absolutely. I mean, that, that's a perfect way to phrase it. Um, it, it. We all know this, right? And we, we actually block it from our the front of our minds. Right. The fact is, day to day, we have lots of positive interactions with a whole range of people. Mm-hmm. Now, even in these socially distanced times, I mean, just today, I went to the store, right? I was in the shopping aisles, moving around, people sort of angling their uh, um, shopping carts and baskets in some ways, and some people not doing it, so you get all angry at them. But 90% of the people did, and many of them smiled behind their masks. Yeah. And when I asked someone for help, they, you know, pointed me to where it was. A, a woman asked me to grab a, a can from a high shelf. I did that for her without thinking about it, right? Yeah. Um, that wasn't a cost-benefit analysis, right? That was just me doing what every human does multiple times on a daily basis. And if we step back and recognize that not only do we have this capacity to do this, but we actually do it all we the time. It. Yeah. You know, yeah. I, it's it's very impressive, um, yeah. and we, we're we're forgetting that right now, and that that terrifies me. It terrifies. Yeah, this week something came across my screen, which was um, it's a group called the Holding Co. or the Cult Holding Company, and they've they've created this list of the Care One Hundred, and it's just extraordinary individuals and nonprofits and initiatives that are bringing the ideas and strategies of care and the practice of care and caring and caregiving. Um, both at the personal level and on the public level, like, in, you know, g- giving that a new future. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, just such an amazing alternate list to, I don't know, the Forbes 100 of <laughs> <laughs> the richest people. And I just feel like that's also a story of our time. And just reading through this Care 100 list made you feel so wonderful about what other human beings are doing. And as as you just said, it correlates to experiences I have in my life and at the grocery store as much as in more dramatic places. Um, how, how can we coax ourselves and others? Because as you're saying, we're having these experiences and they correlate to, to a list like the Care 100, but we don't take it as seriously as we take that narrative of disarray. Well, I think something that people need to do and for their own (laughs) mental and physical health Mm -hmm. is to acknowledge those times that they receive a nod, a smile, an act of compassion from others. And when they give those acts, you know, Mm -hmm. you congratulate themselves or revel in it a little bit. That's one thing. And I I think we we blow these things off. We don't even pay attention to them most of the time. Um, But stop and say, oh, oh, that was really nice or, or something like that. That it's very small and it sounds a little silly to people. But try it for a little while and, and you might be, whoa, this is interesting. Mm-hmm. Another thing we can do is, you know, the act of being involved is also really important because then you feel connected. And also, if people are lucky enough to be able to spend some quiet time by themselves and just relax, just do whatever it takes to relax, that's also important. So I think people need to really consider what they can do for themselves and for others and acknowledge it. Um, mm-hmm. and, and, and that's going to have an impact on your health and on the way you see the world. Right. Is it even going to have an impact on your neurobiology? Yes. Oh, absolutely. It'll have probably the easiestly measurable impact on sort of the the kinds of your blood flow, the kinds of uh, patterns and what's going on in your brain. But but you don't know those. What you know is how you feel. 
right? And, and people have to recognize that what you feel is actually a reflection of your body, your endocrine system, your neurobiology, the interactions you've had, the environment you're in, and whether or not your dog is, you know, rubbing up against your leg or something. Right. I mean, all of those things create how we feel. And, and if you think about it, we have a lot of control over that. Yeah. Um, it just, it feels like we don't. Right. You have to claim that agency. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we humans are incredible agents for better and worse, right? I mean, we've yeah. done horrible things to each other on the planet, but we also regularly do wonderful things. Yeah. And, and we just need to lean into that part of it. Mm-hmm. I know that you did teach at Notre Dame for a while, and I know you've been involved in dialogues with theologians and um, and around the subject of wisdom and maybe maybe that agency we can claim as we move forward. I always think about how Homo sapiens means the creatures who are wise. <laughs> and can we grow into that, into our name? Yeah, you know, I, I'm not sure that was the best idea to write up front, name us Homo sapiens. Um, especially, <laughs> we're the subspecies sapiens sapiens, doubly wise. I, you know, lately, we're just not living up to that, uh, yeah. that label. It's aspirational. But it's aspirational, exactly. So this is a, another one of those incredible examples where pulling out of the lab or sort of field research and, and, and statistics and, and sitting with theologians and philosophers and human people who really, really deeply think about why people are the way they are. Not so much the biological end of it, but, but this sort of all these other ends, all these other processes help me. And, and wisdom, I think, is important because I've come to believe, um, to be convinced that, that wisdom is this capacity right, to learn, to understand, and to experience through perceptions and ways that facilitate different kinds of uh, effectiveness and success in, in mm-hmm. the human, sort of human lives. And so becoming wise is not so much necessarily the accumulation of information, but it's, it's how you engage information and how you use that with others and for others. Hmm. So wisdom is this capacity to take knowledge and experience and do something with it um, and, and do something with it that, that offers the opportunity for change. And I like to connect wisdom with hope. Um, because I think it's it's that deep perspective, that thinking, that, that that offers you this incredible thing that humans have the capacity for, which is hope. Um, this ability to 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 really, despite what's materially going on around you, to imagine possible futures that are better and to strive for them. This also, with wisdom, is another thing that really concerns me because there is a connection, not exclusively, but a strong connection with age and wisdom. The idea that the more experience you have in life, the, the, the greater the possibilities are of accumulating knowledge and experiences and, and thinking in with them and sharing with them. And, and, and for many people, for example, here in the United States, to be flippant about the real serious damage that this COVID-19 landscape is inflicting upon uh, elderly individuals um, that's, yeah. That terrifies me because yeah. to devalue our elders is to devalue the very sort of source of a lot of human success. Yeah, I feel like we've hardly we've hardly spoken that out loud. Like people have thought it, and it's ha- that conversation and it's happening inside hearts and minds all over the place, but not not in our common collective discourse. You know, just one more I want to throw at you. One a, a conversation that comes up in a, a lot of my conversations, especially about our racial reckonings and um, living into the wisdom of activists and elders who who were so active in the middle of this 20th century and 
you know, bringing that wisdom into the present. This notion of love, of love as a public good, is something I think about a lot. And it's, I'm just curious if I throw that at you. Is that something? Uh, so absolutely, because it is, you can't not engage with it. If you're going to be talking about why we believe, if you're talking about what it means to be human, uh, love is front and center. And I've long been hesitant to engage with that because it's, it's a, a, a complex topic, to say the least, and it's very loaded. Um, it's loaded, yeah. Well, it's, it's, an, it's a way watered down, overused yes. word. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Right. Exactly. So, yeah. so let's let's get rid of the way watered down, overused version, the Hallmark card version, and and let's ask ourselves, you know, what is it really? It is this kind of deep, whole investment in another or others, in 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 other humans, in in ideas, in commitments. To to love is to take this incredible human capacity for bonding and attachment and apply it wholly and forcefully. Um, and, and so you can see that if you think about it that way, there's romantic love, there's familial love, there's all of these different ways in which you can do this, right? You can connect it. But it also is really important because we have that capacity and we can develop, I think, wise ways to target this and to apply it. And if we recognize, I think, how so many activists, using the example you gave, so many people who've given their lives to, to trying for change, we can see that love lies centrally, right, mm -hmm. in the entire process. And to deny that is to deny the kind of work that they've done and the kind of work we can do or help do. Um, and so I think beyond just words like commitment or devotion, I think we should think about employing something as fundamentally dramatic yes. as love in some of these cases. I think of love as a form of intelligence that, that we have, as you say, in so many ways. I mean, what it really means to love your children or mm -hmm. love uh, your partner or love your neighbors or love your colleagues is mostly about actions. Mm-hmm. So what if we could take also what we know about how complicated and hard love is and yet worth it mm -hmm. in our private lives and we could apply that to the public canvas? Also, I can think of love economics, right? In an economics perspective where you, the goal here is not to maximize financial benefit or success, but to think about the ways in which we could work within our economic system to reduce inequity, to reduce the stresses and suffering of others, and to infuse compassionate processes into economic patterns. I, you know, maybe people just call me idealistic, but I think that frame might actually be beneficial. Mm. Yeah, it's wonderful. If I ask you this question that we kind of began with that I think runs through all of your work, you know, what it means to be human, if you just, if you just reflected on how your understanding of that has evolved, you know, is evolving right now, it's a huge question, but I'm curious about how you would just start thinking that through. I went through many phases. I would say initially I thought humans were this particularly weird, magical creature that moved around the planet. Uh, then I started going to school, and, and that was unfortunately beaten out of me slightly. Um, and, and then I began to think of humans as another animal, one of the many animals. And, and I really thought of humans as animals and that we're just completely part of the, the sort of world. And then the more I studied other animals, particularly pr other primates and humans, I began to recognize, yes, humans are animals, but you know, we're a very distinctive animal, right? Uh, we are so distinctive that we better maybe modify some of the ways we ask questions and measure data when it comes to humans. And so now, when you ask me what is the human, 
I would argue the one of the most amazing, challenging, world-changing animals out there with the capacity for incredible horror and amazing love. Mm. So mm. I'm back to the magic part, I guess. But it's still, I, you know, I, I really think... <laughs> I think that I, I stand by that statement because I think it's understanding the processes and patterns and the capacities rather than saying it's all this or all that that's going to get us a lot further and understanding why we are the way we are. Mm. Thank you so much. This has been really fun. <laughs> oh, thank you. Uh, this has been just a really enjoyable conversation. Augustine Fuentes is a professor of anthropology at Princeton University. He's written and edited more than 20 books, most recently, Why We Believe, Evolution and the Human Way of Being. In these days around Thanksgiving, we have a tradition of thanking people who make On Being possible behind the scenes. They include Heather Wong, our transcriber, Michael DeMarc, who made our poetry archive sing, Tom Fletcher, Jim Hessian, and the team at Ellie's Cleaning, partners in our Loring Park space, Alfonso Wenker and Trina Olson and their colleagues at Team Dynamics for leading our internal placemaking work, our communications partners at Number 29, Aaron Allweiss, Karen Navarwicki, Karen Towie, and Sue Arisa. Also, Jerry Colonna and the wonderful people at Reboot. Kristen Jones-Pierre and her team at Fagri Baker Daniels. Heidi Grindy, Mary Warner, Hannah Polsgrove, Jennifer Vanyo, and our partners at Clifton Larson Allen. We're also grateful for the teams at Simplecast and Nation Builder and Melissa LaCase, Alicia Allen, and everybody at WNYC. Christy Cecharasi, Thomas Ural, Jess Hendricks, Barbara Hebert, and all of the team at Common Media. Our funding partners, named at the end of this show, along with many generous individual donors, including some of you listening right now, make our work possible. And lastly, a bow to our small but mighty board of directors, who we call our Wisdom Council. Jay Coles, Kanda Mason, and Srinija Srinivasan. Thank you. The On Being Project is located on Dakota land. Our lovely theme music is provided and composed by Zoe Keating. And the last voice that you hear singing at the end of our show is Cameron Kinghorn. On Being is an independent, nonprofit production of The On Being Project. It is distributed to public radio stations by WNYC Studios. I created this show at American Public Media. Our funding partners include the Fetzer Institute, helping to build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Find them at Fetzer.org. Calliopeia Foundation, dedicated to reconnecting ecology, culture, and spirituality. Supporting organizations and initiatives that uphold a sacred relationship with life on Earth. Learn more at Calliopeia.org. Humanity United, advancing human dignity at home and around the world. Find out more at humanityunited.org, part of the Omidyar Group.
The Osprey Foundation, a catalyst for empowered, healthy, and fulfilled lives. And the Lilly Endowment, an Indianapolis-based private family foundation dedicated to its founders' interests in religion, community development, and education. On Being is produced by On Being Studios in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Minnesota.